you know, as a writer, once you've written something, it's out there. AI is going to be using it as inspiration to learn. And should it give you credit? But then I think about all the books that I've read over the years that have influenced my writing. And do I give them credit? If I directly quote them, sure. But if they've just played a part in my growth as a writer, then no. So it's a very interesting thing. Welcome to the Marketing Expedition Podcast, an auditory journey through the latest in marketing, branding, and advertising. Now, here's your Marketing Expedition Guide, Ray Allen. On this week's episode of the Marketing Expedition Podcast, I get to speak with Matthew Turner, and he is a British author who wrote his latest book, Beyond the Pale, on the back of interviewing hundreds of successful entrepreneurs, authors, investors, and thought leaders. As well as writing his own books, Matthew ghostwrites both articles and books for other successful entrepreneurs and thought leaders in between spending time with his two children. And we're going to talk a lot about a variety of things, including the anti-hustle and all kinds of good stuff, AI and copywriting and, and becoming an author, all good things. But first, it's time for our Marketing Essentials Moments, the basics that you need in order to help you continue to build your brand and your bottom line. On last week's episode, I talked a lot about consumer research strategy and insights that you need and why it's important to get them. I'm going to dig in a little bit deeper, and we're going to talk about the different types of market research surveys that you can do, or of course, hire Pepper Shock to help you do, but the understanding of the different types of surveys that you can give to your potential clients or clients or customers that you have or your consumers that are using your product or service. We're going to we're going to talk about that some more. So, absolutely nailing down your ideal consumer is really critical in effective marketing strategy and planning and execution, right? And surveys can help establish the demographics of your target audience and the ones that you are already serving, perhaps the ones that have already been buying from you. If you have been in business for a while, and if it's not, and you're just starting out, and then you want to establish this benchmark. So understanding your buyer personas, and looking at your segment studies of the groups of different types of people who buy from you and the primary, secondary, tertiary. And sometimes what happens in our marketing strategy and planning is as, we, as we're doing surveys, we uncover a whole nother target audience that we didn't even know we had in our consumers that are already purchasing from us. And maybe it's an opportunity to leverage that and actually shift some marketing and targeting and advertising to a whole new group that you didn't even realize or recognize that you had that were buying from you, right? So this is another ideal situation where studying your existing clients can be very helpful in understanding that customer base that you already have, and then segmenting them into different groups of people who have similar products or services needs, or in, you know why they bought from you, you know what stage in life they are in, they're male or female or unidentified or whatever the case might be. So thinking about how you can segment them out what their attitudes, needs, behaviors might be, and then being able to resonate messaging that's going to be targeted to those specific segments and understanding your buyer personas and naming them. We do empathy maps and we actually name our ideal customers, right? They have different names um, based on who they are and we can identify them. And when we're speaking the messaging, okay, well, would Wendy really want to hear that? Or would Todd want to actually buy because of this reason or that reason? Or what's the behavior there? And then segmenting those out even more, you can even have sub-segments and get really targeted and nano-targeted into each of those segments. So that is one way to understand your market research surveys. Another one is measuring the impact of price changes. Now, this is something that we're all going through right now because of our economy, the way it is, inflation, all the things. And so pricing is now becoming very important to understand. And if you are in a position where you're able to raise prices, maybe doing a survey ahead of the price change can actually have a couple of uh, impacts, right? It can maybe allow 
the voice of your consumers to understand and you can understand where they're at and what would cause them to not want to buy from you anymore if it was too too aggressive of a price change, too expensive. Whereas you don't want to be too cheap, right? Um, you want to make sure that the value is in alignment with where you're at. And if they perceive the value and you do this survey and you understand that people are actually willing to pay more than what you're charging, huge opportunity, right? But then on the other side, if you are raising it too high and then you start to lose clients over it, then you know, you're going to lose out on, on some revenue because you've lost clients. So where is that pricing strategy going to be just right? And where's the impact of those pricing changes going to land you? Is it going to you know, increase revenue? But if you lose clients, you're going to decrease revenue because of the loss of clients versus are you going to keep them? So you got to get the optimum price point. And that way you can attract the most number of buyers that are willing to purchase from you because they perceive the value that you give to them, that you bring to them. And maybe sometimes adding some value in that as well is another idea to help mitigate the impact of what it is that you're doing. Maybe you have longtime loyal customers who you know have been with you for a long time through thick and thin. You want to reward those people that for, for their loyalty, right? Their brand loyalty, reward them. Tell them, look, we have to increase our prices, but we're going to add some piece of value to you as a way to thank you for your for your business. And, you know, it might be a small cost, but it also is a way to retain them to continue to have them purchase from you because you don't want to lose them as clients, right? Another survey you can do is exploring the customer experience, how they buy, when they buy, what they buy, and all of those motivations and behaviors and attitudes that go into their buying experience. Why did they buy from you and not somebody else? What was it that made them choose you over your competitor? Find out why, because then now you can use that as leverage in the messaging, the testing. Maybe you can get some customer uh, testimonials and see why they're satisfied with what you have been doing for them. And maybe why not too, right? You want to always get the feedback and maybe there's some things that are um, turning your customers away, but why is that? And understand what that can be, right? And, ex and, and fully understanding that customer experience from start to finish at every step of the way, at the, at the top of the funnel, all the way down through the funnel. And then if you can retain them and repeat, what is that and why? What kind of satisfactions are you getting um, from them? How are you measuring customer satisfaction? Are you using net promoter score? Um, in, are you introducing new products or services or concepts because of their input and their feedback? Um, you can do some things like idea screening. You can do some package testing. You can do some new product concept testing. Is it something that they would want or why would they want it? Or maybe they even give you some new ideas of things that they want that could really help expand and grow your offering and value to them. Another survey or another um, awareness factor that you can do is understanding your brand. The way you see your brand may not always be the way that your customer sees your brand. They might have other words that they use to describe what it is that you do. You may, you may be in a very technical field and the technical words that you describe what you do is not what they are searching for in Google or any of those places where they can search online. Maybe they're searching for different keywords that you don't even know that you're needing to optimize for because they are being able to use layman's terms and being able to get to you in other ways that you're just not even aware of yet. So thinking about how you can understand your brand, step into the shoes of your customer, empathize with them, and understand what they're doing in order to reach you or buy from you or purchase from you or share stories about their brand experience with others and helping to accelerate word of mouth advertising. Because we all know that word of mouth advertising is the best way to advertise. They're giving you referrals and recommendations and um, ratings and rankings and rewards, right? We want to reward them for those things. So understanding the way that your consumers or your clients are buying from you and what sets you apart from your competitors. Is it your price? Is it the value, the perceived value? 
Is it the branding and awareness that you've built up? Is it the brand equity that you've been able to um, allow your uh, constituents to understand and buy from you, right? And over time, understanding how this um, experience with your brand is changing and evolving and positioning and how you can be even more competitive because you are rising to the top because you are tracking all of these things like Ray says that you need to do, right? And then understanding how you can maximize that for customer retention and attraction. And then another one that you can do is researching your internal operations And we had talked about last week about how the employees on the front line know things that you may not know because you're, if you're the marketer or you're the C-level executive or the leader, sometimes what used to be maybe when you were in that position a while ago, now you've, you know, you're in a different position than what you were. Things change rapidly and they evolve. What used to work 10 years ago may not work now, or even what used to work 10 days ago may not work now, right? And just because it's always been that way doesn't mean it's the right way anymore. So researching internal operations, understanding what your um, frontline employees are finding and what they're hearing from the customers. If they're directly talking to them, what is it that you can do in order to gain insights from your employees or your vendors or your staff or the people who your suppliers, right? Maybe there's industry organizations or, you know, affiliations that you can get more new information from that you can continue to get all of the feedback that you need in order to help make your processes better, the organization better. And these questionnaires can be distributed amongst the staff and they can, you can gather anonymous feedback on various aspects of the process. They might give you some ideas of how to make things more efficient, how to save money in certain areas that then you could reallocate and spend in your marketing dollars instead, right? Um What kind of things are you uncovering and discovering by listening and hearing what your employees have to say and improving their methods on how they deliver what it is that they're doing and how it's going to best serve your end user, your client or consumer or donor or any of those things when, you know, you're working in a nonprofit as well, understanding what is working and what's not. So thinking about, yeah, purchasing behavior, Um, how people use your product or service, the brand, the experience that they go through, the attitudes that they're having, um, you know, what they think and what the sentiment is about your brand. And on a scale of one to 10, how likely would they be to recommend you? And if you're scoring pretty low, you need to get to the bottom of that and understand why. And what are the perceptions of your brand? And what kind of brand equity do you have? and top of mind awareness and unaided consideration or unaided awareness, what kinds of things are coming up when people are asked about your industry or your category or your space? Are they saying your brand name or not? And if not, why? What can we do about that? How can we get them to talk about your brand more or be able to share about it or even even get to know it, right? We know that it takes 11 to 13 times now for somebody to see or hear about your brand before they even acknowledge that they've even heard of you before because they're just getting so inundated unless you can disrupt their pattern of what they're doing every day and infiltrate their mind space with your brand name and get that in front of them. They may not even realize or recognize that they've heard of you before. Now, of course, accelerating word of mouth can certainly help that because sometimes if a referral comes from somebody that they know, like, and trust, it may only take one time for that brand to be mentioned and, and your brand will be right in front of them because of the the referrals or the recommendations or ratings or rankings that they're seeing, right? Of course, rewarding those people who talk about you is very, more, very, very important. And also getting their reactions to new product designs or services that you can offer, or maybe testing the packaging, or maybe you've got an idea for your logo that you want to rebrand or refresh or update, all the things that you want to do to do stimulus testing is what that's called, and testing out how they react to it. I remember doing a test one time, it was a pretty big printer manufacturing company, and they were testing the tones that the printer would make. And I was in there testing what sound meant what words to me. 
in how I describe the sound. Because, you know, when you're printing something, you want to have pleasant sounds, right? And and so what kinds of sounds might made the most sense for each type of icon that was being displayed on the screen? So just thinking about that stimulus testing and how you can use that to your advantage before you go and launch a whole new product, you got to test it out and see if it's something that's going to be what they want, right? Minimum viable product to understand if it's going to work and who it's going to work for, what stage of life they're in, what location, what social class, anything that you can do to help classify who your people are, what personas and what stories you can tell about them and, and share that and name them, name them, right? Don't forget to name them because then you can have conversations about the different personas that you're after. So hopefully that gave you a lot of good information on ways that you can survey and use that for your own research and strategy and continuously do it on an ongoing basis, on a regular basis. I always say, measure what you treasure, dump what you don't, automate what you hate. So if you can find a way to automate this process and get it out there in the world, there's so many different tools that you can use to do this. But if you would like some help with it, don't be afraid to reach out to Peppershock. We can certainly help you along in your journey. And with that, let's get into this awesome interview. Here we go. Welcome to the Marketing Expedition Podcast. I'm your host, Ray Allen. I'm the president and CEO of Peppershock Media and the founder of the Marketing Expedition Community. And today's guest, we have Matthew Turner. Matthew, welcome to the show. Ray, thank you so much for having me. A real pleasure to be here. And let's share, where are you actually calling in from, Matthew? I am calling from the north of England in a fairly small town called Halifax. So yeah, beautiful countryside around here. The weather isn't beautiful at the moment, even though we are now in, you know, the, well, we're not quite in summer, but we're edging close. But yeah, we're still not getting the greatest weather, but that's what we're known for here in England, isn't it? Yes, I can't wait to go. I've never been, but one of these days I'm going to make my way over there. <laughs> you should. It is beautiful. Uh, yeah, especially when it's nice rolling hills and green and, and you know, lush. <laughs> good, exactly. good. So Matthew, let's uh, share with our audience a little bit more about you. You're an author and you've got some, some things that you're working on. But uh, let's just give a, a little brief overview of, of who you are, how you got to where you are now, and uh, give, give us some good little nuggets about you, Sir Matthew. Of course. So as you say, I'm Matthew, I'm an author. I also do ghostwriting for clients as well. I've been doing it now for several years. A couple of summers ago now, I published my fifth book, Beyond the Pale. And it was a fable that brought together two passions of mine, fiction and nonfiction, because I've written both over the years. And it was a pleasure to be able to bring that fable to life and focus on some topics that are very dear to my heart and remain dear to my heart to this day. Other than writing and helping my clients bring their genius to life in the way of words, I'm a father of two, so they certainly keep me busy. And I try to um, you know, keep good whole life balance so I'm able to enjoy my work, but have it not quite the expense of my family and my own health and relationships. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Very nice. And um, how, how old are your kids? 10 and 5. Aww. So they keep me busy. They do. They do indeed. Yeah, I can imagine. I have two boys. I have two teenage boys now, so I I know the <laughs> I know the feeling. So, um let's dig into a little bit more about your book that you've recently written, uh, Beyond the Pale, just to give kind of a brief overview or a synopsis of of what the fable is and, you know, what people could get from buying your book or reading your book. What is it that they can walk away by reading that book. So it's called Beyond the Pale, a fable about escaping the hustle and finding yourself. And that's kind of the overarching theme of the book, this idea of hustle culture and how so often we just get ingrained into following, following a version of success that's not really ours. It was placed upon us by parents or teachers or just society as a whole. So we go through life trying to climb the ladder, but the ladder to where 
So the fable follows Ferdinand, who is the poster child of success. We're talking Silicon Valley megastar success. So he has the fame and the good looks and seemingly everything that you could possibly want to have in life. And I crafted his character that way because when you read about Ferdinand, you will have some sort of successful entrepreneur in your mind who you no doubt admire. But we quickly begin to learn that Ferdinand is like all of us, a human being. And he's got his fragilities and his imperfections and his insecurities. And he goes on a journey after having his mind awakened, if you will, trying to figure out if what he's building with his business and his life is actually what he intended and still intends. And he goes to some lovely places, meets some incredible people and goes down a rabbit hole of personal development and learns about mindset and our relationship between mind, body and spirit and so many other things which kind of come into this idea of self-improvement. And he gets to the end of the story, not necessarily with the answers he craved in the beginning, but starting to ask the right questions. And that's what I hope those who read it take from Beyond the Pale. Excellent. And you're right. There's so many things that are happening now where it's, you know, hustle this and hustle that and you get your side hustle going and people are just going, going, going. And it's definitely overtaking the world now. And it's kind of interesting because we know that the next generation doesn't really want the hustle, right? They want the life. They want to work to live, not live to work, right? Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, that's one of the big things, problems with hustle culture as well, because it's not just about working the long hours and grinding the gears and there's nothing wrong with working hard there's nothing wrong with working long and there's certainly nothing wrong with having a side hustle but what hustle culture quite often does it tries to have you pursue this work-life balance as if you as you say live to work or work to live as if it's an either or and one of the aspects that i've learned in recent years is this idea of we, how we should pursue whole life balance or how some like to call it whole life integration, because the world is no longer defined with office and home. Most of us work at least somewhat remotely. And even if you don't have that remote setting with work, with things like social media and email and just the online world in general, and let's face it, it's only going to become more exasperated in the coming years with things like AI. The lines between what is work and what is your personal self and what is your relationships and social circles and all these other facets that make up your world, they've come together. The lines are blurred to the point where there's often not even a line. So it's about trying to integrate them. It's about trying to create greater whole balance rather than separating and wearing these different masks. But hustle culture forces you to grind those gears and climb the ladder and start trying to segment and bucket these different aspects. And when you put all that together with the fast and furious pace that is 2023 and beyond and how we're constantly getting edited peaks into other people's lives, it leaves us exhausted. Not only exhausted in a physical sense of just trying to keep up, but exhausted in an emotional and psychological and even an existential sense because we start to constantly in these micro settings compare ourselves to others to a point where we lose sight of like who we even are anymore because we're trying to wear all these different hats and caps and masks so it's a very toxic thing and yeah as i started to research and delve down that rabbit hole right and beyond the pale i realized just how yeah problematic it is and you know, how we're all encompassing it can be. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit more about your background and kind of where you came from and what led you to want to write this fable. Well, my background is very much similar to yours. I'm educated in the world of marketing. So that's kind of where I I did, you know, at university and I got my degrees and my master's. So I've always had an affiliation towards marketing. I've always liked it. I always loved the strategic side as well and building narratives around brand and narrative uh, and storytelling and all of those things and how marketing can really help you immerse yourself in a brand. 
I've never really enjoyed just the sell, sell, sell side of it. But the nurturing and the, the sort of more rounder houses way of marketing is something that I've always loved. So that was my my background. And I always just assumed I would remain in the world of marketing forever, even up until just five or six years ago. Writing became a therapeutic passion of mine in my early 20s, just to help me express myself and to get all those wandering thoughts and worries and questions in my mind just out. And they always just led to books. So all my books have one thing in common and that thing is some sort of question, some kind of worry, some kind of thing that I just needed to explore. And writing is my way to do that and to make sense of it. So I wrote on the side for a long time and I would do marketing and eventually I left my job so I could focus more time on my writing, but I would still do like marketing consultancy and things of that nature. And bit by bit, the two worlds came together initially with content marketing, so social media and things of that nature. But then in more recent years, it's kind of become ghostwriting. So I write now for myself, but I write also for others, but it's usually very much ingrained in this world of marketing. So it's content, whether it's a book or an article or email sequences. I use all the knowledge that I've learned over the years from marketing and I've used all the other knowledge I've learned over the years from writing to try and build something and bring my clients' geniuses into the into the world, whether they want it through articles or emails or books or guides or whatever it may be. That's amazing. Yeah, it, being able to combine the two and be able to have a great ability to copyright and, and, you know, have persuasive messaging if you need it, or like you said, immersion in the brand and telling the story of the brand. Yeah, that's that's a pretty uh, good quality to have. And by the way, I don't think AI is going to completely replace what human intelligence can do. <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. It's it's a world I'm starting to explore more and more. I'm about to run a bit of an experiment as we record this, actually, because it's an interesting thing. Here. The experiment is going to be like a writer's dilemma. You know, AI is a writer's dilemma. You know, should we fear it? Should we be excited by it? At this moment in time, I'm not 100% sure where I stand. I sense I will fall somewhere in the middle. I think it's important to embrace the future. It's going to happen whether we like it or not. Technological advancement is just inevitable. And AI is going to be a part of it. Where I will stand in the whole tin pot, tin, uh, tin foil hat, Analogy, I'm, I'm not too sure. We will see. But AI is certainly going to change the game in the same way as our access to the online world to change the game. I like to think it won't replace writers, but it will probably force certain stubborn writers. And I imagine it will face force certain stubborn marketers and salespeople and accountants and lawyers, etc., etc., into obscurity because it's important to embrace what's ahead. So that's what I'm going to be trying to do. Use it as an assistant and as a collaborator. In what form? I'm not sure. But hopefully in the coming weeks, I'll figure it sounds, out. It sounds like another quandary or question to try to tackle and answer, but you're not going to have an answer. So it's another fable in the making, right? <laughs> Could be. I mean, <laughs> be. I've been there before. I'm hoping not. I don't want to write a book about AI, but sometimes you've got to read the book, write the book you need to write. So you're going to start with a with an article, an experiment. There you go. We'll I like see that. if it develops anything. <laughs> yeah. So what what uh, what tools are you? What AI tools are you uh, exploring with right now? At the moment, like I say, it's, I'm pre-experiment, so I've not gone too deep. I've basically just been working with like ChatGPT as the, the standard. But there's a few tools which I've started to make a list of, and it's a tough one. I find tools, and I'm always like this. Whenever I come into it, I it's so easy to get lost into the tools and and the features and the widgets. And there's going to be loads of tools out there that sound exciting. But it's really about honing in on the more philosophical use of it. So that's going to be trying how I'm going to do it. I'm not going to get too focused on the tools. I will use a handful and try and explore different ones and see which ones fit. But for me, I'm more interested in the holistic approach of using AI initially with writing, but it goes much deeper than that because you can use it in 
every facet of your work. So it'll be interesting to approach it in a more holistic sense and try to use AI in a way that is going to be complementary, enhance strengths and allow you to navigate your weaknesses rather than trying to use every single tool just because you can. And it's, I'm already seeing it. I've just dipped my toe into the rabbit hole and there's tools coming out every single day. And some of them will be amazing, but many of them will just be, you know, a slightly different shade of beige to the previous one. And that's what I find whenever something big comes into the play. Well, and a word to the wise, because I've, you know, played around with different ones. I gave a talk at a visual storytelling conference a couple of weeks ago. And so I signed up for some trials, you know, and just keep track of the ones you sign up for so that they don't start charging you, you know, they'll give you a free trial, but then charge you, right? A couple of them, I, I had like a seven day trial and I realized, oh, I forgot to cancel it. So <laughs> but a couple of them I'm still using that are, are pretty, you know, handy to have around, but yeah, just remember, if you do sign up for any, <laughs> keep track of the ones that you don't want to use anymore so that you don't start having these, you know, $9.99 bills come through and you're like, what is this? <laughs> I'll be um, having to touch base with you after this so you can share some <laughs> yeah. of the recommendations with me. Yeah, well, a couple that come to mind that we researched were, it's called Phrase, F R A. S-E, you know, the, the the new ways of saying words and creating new words out of old words, right? But you can rephrase what chat GPT does and it'll make it a little more conversational and, and do some things. And then Quillbot is another one that'll take it and make it to where it's more conversational, just kind of, you know, other things to do. And then there's one that's, I think it's called Artsy that you can use for modifying photos and imagery that match what you want. And you can tell it what you want and it'll generate it for you. But really where the dilemma comes in is the the samples of artwork that it, it, it takes, right? I mean, because it's got to create something from somewhere. And so what about the people who've created artwork or created copywriting in some capacity? How does it give credit to where credit should be due, right? It seems like, it seems Absolutely. like. <laughs> That's one of the big things, which I think if I continue to write about AI moving forward, and as I say, I'm not too sure where I'll stand on that from, but I think it'll be more on the sort of ethical dilemma of it. Because I find it fascinating. And as you say, you know, as a writer, once you've written something that's out there, AI is going to be using it as inspiration to learn. And should it give you credit? But then I think about all the books that I've read over the years that have influenced my writing. And do I give them credit? If I directly quote them, sure. But if they've just played a part in my growth as a writer, then no. So it's a very interesting thing. and. Yeah, from a creative side, it's it's fascinating and worrying, and it just makes my head hurt. <laughs> well, I do know that there is some hope. I when I was at a conference, um, I spoke at in Saudi Arabia. There's this big technology conference, and um, it was called Leap Technology Conference, and they had a panel of AI experts. Well, one individual she runs the the AI department at uh, Shutterstock. And they're trying to address this, this idea of if it's something getting sampled from, you know, imagery that's getting sampled from somebody else's photo that, you know, because they, they do stock photo, right? And, and for us, like we upload stock photos and we get paid credits or, you know, get paid for the images that people download and use that we've taken. So we have, you know, we get paid royalties for it. And, and so they're trying to, you know, navigate that and make sure that credit is given where credit is due. And like, even if it's just a portion of something that was sampled, that's then now created, like, you know, being able to get those images that then get sampled so that the original creators can get paid. Right. I mean, that's kind of the, the, the idea that, you know, for those creators who make something, then it's theirs to, and if they upload it for, you know, royalty free or stock licensed that they get some compensation for it, even if it's just partial because they've only used partially of their photo. But I thought it was really fascinating that they have a director of AI, right? 
and then there was another panelist that was a lawyer and just other people that were trying to navigate it. And, you know, nothing has been, you know, this is, this, this is all brand new. So it'll be curious to watch and see if something does, you know, show up in court. But on the other side too, the deep fake where sometimes it's really difficult to determine whether or not something has been modified. Right. So think about like criminal investigations. And if people are looking at images that have been modified, but then to the, you know, the naked eye, you can't tell that it has been because they've gotten so good at it that it'll be interesting to see, you know, what's happening. But yeah, they, they uh, that that's a whole nother, a whole nother dilemma, right? <laughs> it is. We are about to, I suppose we entered it a number of years ago, but it's becoming very front and center all of a sudden. We're about to go into a fascinating new era. And I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. I sense nobody really does. People can predict and people will have a greater insight than others, but it'll be fascinating where it goes down. And the next five or 10 years, at least, I think will be, yeah, a constant, like a zig followed by a zag, followed by another zig, where just when we think, oh, we've got that bit figured out, yeah something else will be thrown up something will come up so, yeah well yeah and it's going to be interesting to see how many of these sci-fi movies actually come to reality right i mean like that do you ever remember the jetsons cartoon that where there was like a robot that would clean the house and do all these things i'm like well we have a a, a, a roomba that will <laughs> back yeah. for us i mean getting close <laughs> all these sci-fi movies that are coming to reality it's just crazy <laughs> It is. It is. It'll be interesting. It'll be an interesting period of time. Yeah. Cloud Campaign helps agencies scale. Like us, we're an agency and we use this for our clients just the same as you could if you're an agency as well. You can onboard more social media clients and charge a higher retainer with leaner teams. It's a powerful all-in-one platform for planning, scheduling, community management and reporting, all for your agency clients to access and they have one dashboard to see all of their social media. They can approve all of the posts that you've created, just like we do for our clients at Peppershock Media. This is a tool for agencies to use for your clients. And if you're a potential client, you want your social media managed, then get a hold of us because we can help you do that too. Go to peppershock.com offers to find out more. Well, let's get back to, um, I, so I have a couple questions for you. If you had to target who you wanted to have read your book, like who's the ideal person that should read the, well, the most recent book that you've written, the, what do you think would be the most beneficial reader for you? So I wrote initially Beyond the Pale for someone who was a little bit like me, a millennial, a business owner, someone who had started to build a decent degree of momentum in their business and indeed their life. Like they were starting to get some things down, you know, car, a house, getting the base built. (laughs) Exactly. You know, you you start feeling like I've put some foundations, but you reach a point where I've got these foundations and I still don't feel like I have anything to really do with them it's like where to start what wall how high so you start to question like what 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 is it that i'm actually wanting you feel like you've built something decent you feel like you are happy or certainly not unhappy but you don't feel like you're quite fulfilling the potential you don't feel like you've quite got it figured out you don't feel like you're quite necessarily happy so that's kind of who i wrote it for you know someone who is doing okay in fact, on the outside looking in, probably doing far and just okay. But on the inside, just feels like the pieces aren't quite clicking into place. That's who I wrote it for. Since writing the book and publishing it and hearing the various feedback, what I've learned is that it wasn't just for millennials. People younger, people older have certainly felt a rapport with it. And what surprised me was it, I, I very much assumed that it would be other entrepreneurs. It's why I made Ferdinand an entrepreneur. It's why he met up with other entrepreneurs because I thought it would very much be a business-centered kind of book. But people who have a more you know, specific nine-to-five job, people in the corporate world, 
all these various different people were going, yeah, it spoke to me. I could relate to it. I could feel myself walking along Fernand, even though we didn't necessarily live similar lives. It started to spark important questions with me. And this is when the depth of hustle culture became more apparent to me because I realized that it is all around us. It doesn't matter whether you're an entrepreneur or not. It doesn't matter whether you work for yourself or not. The world has and is continuing to change. So who I feel it is perfect for is someone who has reached a point in their life where they have started to lay down the foundations. They feel like they should be more happy or content or fulfilled than they actually feel. And there's just something going on inside of them, like an inner voice, a gut feeling that makes them just question. There's just an unsettling. They don't quite know what it is, but they just don't feel like everything's quite right. That person is going to read Beyond the Pale and they'll have their eyes opened and they will hopefully reach the end of it closer to asking the right kind of questions so that they can go forth to find the answers rather than just throwing broad questions into the universe in the hope that the answer will find them. And I think that's what a lot of people who are in that situation are. They've laid the foundations. They've reached a certain age or a certain point or a certain situation where they feel like I should be happier, more fulfilled, more satisfied than I am, but I'm not. So I'm just going to try all these things. I'll buy these things. I'll go on a health kick. I'll go on a diet. You know, I'll travel. They're just, they're just throwing questions out there, reading all the self-help books that they can, all the, all the how-to books that they can. They're just throwing broad questions into the universe, hoping the answer will find them. I think that's what most people do. And I think if you, most people do that long enough, it leads to the stereotypical midlife crisis. I think a midlife crisis is often a byproduct of years of throwing broad questions into the universe. So the sooner we can go, okay, I ain't going to throw no more broad questions into the universe. I'm going to actually go in search of the right questions. So then I can find the right answers. We won't reach those points of crisis, existential or not. We won't reach the point of crisis in terms of addiction or, you know, just depression or whatever else it may be. So I don't think there's an age limit necessarily. I think people can go through this in their early 20s. Some people can go through this when they're younger. Some people might not go through this until their 30s or 40s. But yeah, if you've reached a point where you feel like I should be happier, more satisfied, more fulfilled than I am right now, because I've got these things which for a long time I felt like I wanted. Yet there's still a longing for more and I'm not sure what more is. Read Beyond the Pale. It will help and tell me about the name, the title of your book. What concluded, how did you conclude on the title? I was inspired to do it from reading Stealing Fire from uh, Stephen Kotler and Jamie Dean, I think is the other author. And it was mentioned, you know, it was, it's a book, I don't know if you read it, it's a book about finding flow state. Fascinating book. I find the whole idea of flow state fascinating, very interesting. Certainly one of the rabbit holes I found myself going down while researching Beyond the Pale. And it was just something mentioned in that book. And I was like, I like that. It's obviously a, a saying that I'd heard many times before, this idea of going beyond. And it allowed me to, yeah, structure the idea of the sort of philosophical standing beyond, beyond the book, which I was trying to craft. The idea that at any given point, we only know what we know. So imagine you're in a cottage and you've got a nice picket fence the pale, if you will, around you. Within that is your, it's, it's comfortable. It's a, it's a version of your comfort zone. You're, you're doing okay. You're able to, you know, go through the motions, through the good and the bads. You know there's things beyond the pale, but you can't see it or perceive it because you can only see as far as you can see. So the idea of Beyond the Pale is based on these sort of three levels. The first being awareness or an awakening, then the ascension, the climb of the mountain. And then the third part is this idea of amplifying. So you reach the new state so you can amplify it, evolution. So it's the three A's. When you're in within the pale 
and you're having an awakening, you have a choice of whether you're going to roll over and go back to sleep or take some action, go beyond the pale, climb over the fence and then start the climb. So there's a bit of an analogy I've written that uh, kind of a, a, a mini fable, if you will, um, to, to describe it. But that's the overarching premise of when okay. making. Okay. Well, I have to admit, I hadn't heard that before, the pail being the white picket fence. I was thinking maybe a bucket, maybe a, you know, pale, uh, like pale skin, or, you know, I was trying to think, okay, what is that? But that makes total sense now beyond the, the, the pale white picket fence. <laughs> beyond the fence. Yeah. yeah beyond and it's it's interesting. I've read a recent book called Comfort Zone, great author Kristen Butler, and it gave me a new insight into this idea of the comfort zone because it's another part of hustle culture where we're led to believe like growth is on the other side of the comfort zone. And getting to know Kristen and beyond and her book with Comfort Zone has shown me that there's more to it than that. The comfort zone, it's okay to be in it. It's okay to build a comfortable zone around you and not feel like you constantly have to step beyond, not have to constantly step out. But it doesn't mean that the comfort zone is going to stay as is forever. You know, it can evolve, it can creep outwards, it can lead you to new places. So it, yeah, it's a fascinating rabbit hole to dive down, quite frankly. And it's one I continue to dive down on, the, on a daily basis. And I'm certainly not someone who has all the answers. But yeah, writing beyond the pillars certainly led me a bit closer to to one of the correct questions. Good, good. Well, before we wrap up here today, I just had a couple more questions for you. Thinking about young people who might want to get into this industry of becoming a ghostwriter or becoming a writer or copywriter or a fiction, not you know, a, a, whatever, kind of in that field. What kind of advice would you give somebody that would like to go down that similar path that you have found yourself in? I suppose the first thing would be to um, educate yourself on AI. <laughs> yeah. Since we talked about earlier, <laughs> you are going to have to um, be a writer who collaborates with it, I imagine, moving forward. But for me, anyone who wants to get into writing, it's about finding a reason for writing. I know there's a cliche out there where everyone says I've got a book in me and it's true to an extent because everyone has stories our lives are made up of stories and a book is nothing more than a story but the craft of writing goes much deeper than that and the honest reality is that most people although they have a lifetime of stories it doesn't necessarily matter mean that they have a book because a book has to have a purpose so to write is to have a purpose is to have a reason to write there needs to be a sense of passion there needs to be a sense of necessity i need to write that is why i write i need to write because it's how i express myself it's how i learn it's how i grow there's a selfish reason for me to write and i think anyone to get in any of the creative arts whether it's you know the design or music or whatever else it has to start in a selfish place. It has to start with you wanting to do it for you. So do it for you. Do it without worrying about what others think. Do it without worrying about making money. Do it without worrying about this, that, and the other. Do it because this is something you want to do and indeed you need to do. Once you do it because you need to do it for long enough, you learn. You start to find your voice. You start to find your version of story. That is when you're ready to start peeling away the layers, whether it leads you to writing books, copywriting, ghostwriting for others. There's so many things. That's when you can start being more selfless. But writing, I think it's true with any creativity, has to start in a selfish place. And selfish isn't a bad word. It gets a bad rap, but it's important to be selfish. It's important to fill your cup before you fill others. And for me, writing has to start with you filling your own cup. If you get into writing for that reason and it has that kind of purpose and why, I have no idea where it'll take you, but you certainly won't regret it. Yeah. 
No, it's just like the how the airlines say, you know, put your own mask on first and then help others so that you can be there to help them, right? And maybe it's kind of like a similar scenario. You have to help yourself before you can help others. And if you want to, you know, get that creative genius out of you, then uh, you can then share it with others. I think that's great. Speaking of sharing with others, uh, how can people get the book? How can they reach out to you? And, you know, if they want to hire you to ghostwrite or, or something of that nature, um, please do share uh, all of that good good information. Of course. Well, if you'd like to learn more about Beyond the Pale, just go to beyondbook.co. That's beyondbook.co. You'll be able to download a free chapter or two to get a feel for whether it's a book you'd like to commit to. And then there's links to where you can buy it and listen to it on Audible and all that good stuff. There's also links to my personal site, which is turndog.co. And that's where you'll be able to find more information about me and my story and ghostwriting. And also a new little project that I'm working on, very much linked to Beyond the Pale and is an extension of it. Indeed, the book inspired it and it's called No Hustle. So you'll be able to learn that at nohustle.co. At the time of recording this, it's in pre-development. I'm just about to launch it in the coming weeks. And that's going to be taking up a lot of my time in the coming years, hopefully, where I write and experiment and talk about all things anti-hustle. So that's nohustle.co. I like it. I like it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of you ha- what you had today, uh, Matthew. And really appreciate having you on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And for those of you listening, the best thing that you can do for Matthew and I is to share this with others that you know need to hear what Matthew had to say today. And we would absolutely love a review on any podcast platform that you are listening to. And I'm going to start doing some shout outs. So if you give us a review and screenshot it and send it to us, then I will give you a little shout out and a little plug to say thank you on the show. And uh, we've been starting to put those on social media and capturing that. So give us a review and we'll we'll give you a little shout out. Hopefully they're all good reviews, right, Matthew? Yeah, keep them good, right? Keep them <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, everybody. And until next time, enjoy your marketing journey. Thanks for listening to the Marketing Expedition Podcast. Want to continue the journey? Don't miss out on new episodes. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Wouldn't it be great if there was one place you can go to get all the latest information and tips about marketing and advertising? The Marketing Expedition community is that place. People like you gather in our online community to build relationships with others and find the latest marketing trends, tactics, tools, and technology. We help you build your brand and your bottom line. Start your adventure today. Visit themarketingexpedition.com to find out more.